Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Heavenly Father, thank you for this life that we have. Thank you for this season in which we remember that you sent your son, that while we were yet sinners, Christ came for us, Christ lived for us, Christ died for us, so that we might live for you, be restored to you, and live forever with you. Father, I pray that you would fill our hearts with joy, that you would give us faith, that you give us eyes to see this world for all that it is, and you for all that you are. Father, help us to rest in your grace and to rejoice in it. Father, help that also to motivate us. Father, to fight the good fight, as Paul calls us to. Father, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We are in 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you got your Bibles, you might open there. And we are wrapping up this series called Fight the Good Fight, or the good fight that Paul talks to us about. And as we wrap this up, I really hope today uh, it kind of comes out as, as kind of a battle cry. Paul presents us kind of like a pep talk pregame uh, for an athletic event or something like that. He's kind of given a final charge to wrap up the book. And as he does, I, I hope that for those of you that doubt, that this gives you a little bit of confidence. For those of you that just, man, you're struggling, that you just realize that, it's, that, that the struggle is not the final measure of your life, but that there's a better day to come. For those of you who, who sometimes just wonder if it's all worth it, I hope that this just girds you up and strengthens you to realize that it's all worth it in the end. And so we're going to be looking at this last section here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. So let me just read for us. We're going to start in verse 11. It says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate also made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only in the only sovereign the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, Thus storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. This is the end of the book of 1 Timothy. Notice uh, man, there's this kind of closing call. And then there's some verses that are a little bit strange. And we're gonna unpack that today. But I wanna start off with this very first phrase that it mentions. Uh, what's the, the first address he gives to Timothy? He says, but as for you, O man of God. Let me ask you this. Are you a man of God? Are you a woman of God? Do you see yourself as a man of God or a woman of God? I think sometimes we forget really who we are. Uh, Kierkegaard gave a wonderful parable called the Goose Parable, that, which he talked about the uh, kind of the Western church and our way in which we often operate. And he talked about at Christmas time that they loved to eat geese. And so they would import thousands of geese and they'd get them and uh, they would let them kind of go all year round and, and, and just feed them. And they would overfeed them. And these geese would run around the yard and they would just be pecking away at the seed that's right in front of them. And, uh, and so all year long, these geese are roaming this area and they just keep throwing food out. And what do the geese do? 
they keep their head down, they see the step right in front of them, and they just consume more and consume more and consume more. And then you get around till the fall, and the wild geese come flying overhead. And, and as they come flying overhead, he said that you could see in these geese that there'd be this kind of upward look, and they'd see and think, there's something about that I should remember, but they've forgotten who they were. And so they become so bloated and weak, they could no longer fly. And so they would look up at the sky and they have this sense of yearning, but then they quickly look back down and just begin to consume more of the feed right in front of them. And they just continue to eat. Uh, they forgot really what they were created to do until they found themselves on a Christmas table, uh, finding themselves in another situation altogether. Uh, friends, do you know who you are? Are you a wild goose? Are you a tame goose? Have you forgotten what you were created to do? Have you gotten so consumed with the things right in front of you that you forgot that which you were really made for? I think it's important for us to see when Paul addresses them, addresses Timothy here and he says, oh man of God, he does this twice for Timothy. He's trying to remind him and you are made for more than the thing right in front of your face. You are made for something greater. You're made for a divine purpose. And so I think we need to remember that God has spoken to the, uh, about us as well. First Peter chapter two, verse nine, 10 says this, and he, and he says this to you. You friends are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you did not know mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, we are men and women of God because God has called us, because God has redeemed us, because God has saved us. First Peter 1 says, God has caused you to be born again to a living hope through Jesus' resurrection. And that because he's caused you to be born again, he says that you are being guarded by God's power. Do you recognize that you've been called by God into his great salvation and that he in his resurrection power, the power that he used to raise, that Jesus raised, was raised from the dead, that same power is guarding over and watching over your life to make sure that you one day will be with him. Friends, when you say I am a man of God or a woman of God, you are saying that God's got me in his hand and he's never gonna let go. Jesus said, all that the father has given me, I will not lose one. You are secure in his strength and in his, in his own power. So friends, when we get distracted by, or when we forget who we are, what we see in this passage is we get distracted by the wrong things. In fact, what is the man of God supposed to do? What's, what's the charge that he gives to Timothy? He says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. And then he says, pursue these things. So you're gonna run away from certain things and you're gonna run towards other things. You're gonna flee certain things. What are the things that we're supposed to flee? Well, those really go back to the earlier verses in this chapter. And as he kind of unpacked that earlier, he's talking about the quarreling, the bickering, the contention, the, the conflict, those who, uh, who, who are trying to use their spirituality for some kind of material gain. He's talking about all the kind of divisiveness and dissension that you saw earlier in this chapter. And so he's saying, flee these things. Don't give yourself to those. And so there's something that we need to run away from. But then there's also something he says that we are to pursue or we're to follow after. And so flee some things, follow after other things, run after them, pursue them. What are the things we're supposed to follow? We're supposed to follow in the path. And he gives us six things, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Those aren't the only things, but oftentimes you'll see these lists in the Bible and it gives you these things that are kind of representative of the good stuff that you're supposed to chase after. And so he's saying to us, and you need to, this is part of the spiritual life is you learn to say no to the old way that your flesh oftentimes wants you to go. And you learn to say yes to God's way and a new way in which you're called to live. Uh, there, there's a process of growth that takes place there. Friends, do you feel that sometimes in the spiritual life that there's kind of this retraining of yourself to, to live in a different way, that you need to reorient your perspective, reprioritize the things you're chasing after in order to seek after the things of God. There, there are things that we naturally desire in our flesh, and the Bible continually says, don't give yourself to the things of the flesh, but give yourselves to the things of the Spirit. 
That God's calling you to put off the old and put on the new. That we're to put off the self and we're to put on Christ. And so there's this constant language in the New Testament that talks about this kind of spiritual growth process of retraining ourselves to shed ourselves of some things and to take on new things or a new way of life. Can I let you in on a little secret? Your pastor doesn't always like to obey. Like I don't, I don't always want to do the right thing. I feel a lot of times the way you probably feel, and it's just my flesh would rather do something else. That I don't want to serve my kids when they're being selfish. And yet I'm called to do that. I don't want to tell my wife I'm sorry when I'm wrong. I don't want to, sometimes I don't want to work on a sermon just being totally blunt and honest. Like there's days where I'm like, man, I don't want to do this. I wish I could just go be selfish today. I wish I could, rather than being being generous uh, with my money, there's times where I go, man, I'd, I'd rather just like to kind of keep some of this to myself. Any of you relate to that at all? Or am I the only one? Like, am I the only one that has a struggle of there's things that feel really easy to do and there's things I know that are the right things to do and they feel sometimes a little bit more difficult? Like, I got to work for them? It's hard sometimes to do those things. I don't always respond in gentleness when someone disrespects me. I don't always respond with love or choose loving action when there's times where it's like, you know, I'd really like to just be selfish today. Any of you wake up those days and go, you know, today'd be really good if it could be all about me. And like, sometimes you need rest and you need some me time to like recoup, but there's a whole orientation of your life that you can kind of go, hey, everyone, I'm here, feed me. And you start to look like a tame goose that just goes, my job is just to consume, to consume, to consume. And I forget who I am. I forget what I'm made for. I forget what I was created for. Friends, everyone struggles. The pursuit of holiness is not a destination for us in this life. It's, it's a path that we're on. It's a course that we constantly veer off of and we have to confess and turn and come back to. And so we have to chase after these things. And what we see, and I think what Paul's calling us to here is that mediocre Christians oftentimes settle with, and become comfortable wandering off the path. But good fight Christians are constantly course correcting and coming back to the path that God has them on. And so we have to fight for that which is in front of us and that which is God is calling us to do. Friends, great guys and gals struggle with the right things. So we're called to flee certain things. We're called to follow other things. The third thing we're called to do is fight. Look with me at, at the next verse here. Paul says, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession. And we're called to fight the good fight. It's interesting when you think about fight. He's not just saying that we're called to be fighters, right? Like the last guys, the, the, the false teachers, the bad guys from the first part of this chapter, they fought an awful lot. The point isn't to be a fighter. The point is to fight what? The good fight. It's a singular article, the fight of the faith. There's one gospel and one gospel life that we're called to, and we're to fight for that. We're to fight for the, the life which he's gonna later say, you're supposed to grab hold of that which is truly life. This image is really, it's athletic imagery that he's calling us to, to seek and to grab, take hold of. It's kind of this like an athlete that's, that's competing in a, in, a, in, a, in a kind of the battle of a game. And he's going after it with everything he's got. So here in the slide, it says, uh, take hold of, and this is what, it, we're unpacking this a little bit, and I want to, you may need to look on the slide to make sense of this, but he's talking about our salvation here. And as he talks about our salvation, he gives two different phrases for that. The first is, he says, the eternal life to which you were called. See, part of our salvation comes from what God has called us to. God called us. This is God's part. He, he summoned us to himself. He gave us faith and, and, and invited us in by his grace to this thing called salvation. And then he, Paul gives us the other side. He says, about which you made the good confession. The confession we make is, I can't save myself, but Jesus can. And so I'm confessing my need for a savior and I'm confess, confessing my, the, the sufficiency of my savior, Jesus. And so I make a good confession about the fact that Jesus can save me. And I also am in that and receiving the call that God has given to me. And so this is the salvation that we're to understand this. So friends, here's what I want you to understand. God called you. He knew who you were. He knew your gifts. He knew your talents. He knew where you were stupid and he knew where you were smart. 
He knew the things that you really grasp naturally and the things that you were gonna really struggle with. He knew your sin. He knew your history. He knew your thought patterns. He knows the stuff that you don't want anyone else to know that's deep down in here that you think about and you don't wanna let anyone see, but sometimes leaks out in ways you don't want it. God knew all of that and he still called you. He called you to himself exactly as you are because he cared about you. And so he called you to an eternal life. It also says that you made the good confession. Uh, it's, it's interesting when he talks about taking, uh, taking hold of this life that we have. There, there's a sense in which we've been saved, but there's a sense in which we are being saved and we will be saved. And so our salvation gets worked out over time. It's begun and there's a certain beginning point, but there's, not, but there's also a process we go through in which we're being changed and a process we will go through in which we're glorified and we live with him forever. And so in that process of salvation, we have to appropriate or take hold of the kind of life that he wants to give us. So he says, take hold of the eternal life. He's not saying you have to earn your salvation. He's saying you have to appropriate, move into experience the salvation he's come to give you. And so he talks about taking hold of that which you've already been granted, which is their eternal life. When he says the good confession in the presence of many witnesses, what's he talking about there? Some of baptism that when you're saved, when you're converted, when you're born again, that there's this kind of new life thing that happens where God gives you new life and he makes you new. He makes you a new creation. And sort of the, the, the coming out party for us as new believers is baptism. That we come together in front of the church, in front of other witnesses, and we're baptized, meaning we profess or confess our dependence upon our Savior Jesus. And so that's what he's referring to here is he's talking about his baptism. Now, it's interesting for the Christian, our spiritual birth date is our confession, that we're born again. We're, the Bible says we're regenerated. We're made new. We become new creations. There's all this language that it talks about that we were not, in the passage we looked at earlier, you once had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. You once, uh, you, you once were not the people of God, but now you're a people of God. There's a defining marker that's there. Now, you may not remember the time, but it's there. And so what Paul does is he kind of gives us a marker and you can imagine like if I took some masking tape and I just put an X on the ground over here and that became a marker that said, hey, here's where the beginning of your journey was. This is where it starts. It starts at the place where God called you and where you made a good confession by faith. And so you trusted him. That's the beginning point of your spiritual life. That's the, the defining marker of the beginning of this process at which you would grow. And so you've been called into eternal life. When that happens, what happens in our, in our conversion and our baptism is that sets the trajectory for the rest of our lives. The God, it says, gives us a new heart. He puts his spirit in us. He makes us a new creation. He begins to renew us from the inside out. Our minds begin to get reshaped so that we might be conformed to the image of a son. The whole trajectory of our life begins to change. And so when we're saved, we begin this kind of new life where our priorities, our goals, our values all change and the things that are on God's heart become to, begin to be put on our heart. We begin to care about the stuff that Jesus cares about. So there's a defining moment where everything just begins to shift and go in a whole new direction. And this is what I think Paul is, is trying to get us to understand. And he even ups the ante a little bit because he says that day, whenever you made the good confession, you did it where? in the front of many witnesses. And then he's gonna go on and he says, in the presence of God, in the presence of Jesus Christ. And so do you feel that? Like you're standing and you're making a confession. Think about it in terms of like a courtroom where you're testifying to something to be true. You're making a good confession in front of many witnesses, in front of God Almighty, in front of Jesus Christ, and you're confessing this to be true. That's really the image that Paul is wanting us to understand here. And he's calling us to, uh, to, to understand the, the accountability that in, in a sense we were, we were kind of holding court. So are you following the argument that Paul's making here? As men and women of God, we're supposed to run away from some things. We're supposed to run towards other things, right? And we're called to fight the good fight and, and take hold of the life that God has called us up into. So that's kind of the big picture of what he's saying. Now, here's my question for you. How long are you supposed to fight this fight? Do you see it in the text? What's the text say? Into verse 14, beginning of verse 15. It says, to keep the commandment unstained from approach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus, verse 15, which he will display at the proper time. 
How long do we keep up this fight? Until Jesus comes back. Uh, now, that's a good day for us. Now, the question you may be asking is, sure, Jeff, but like, when's Jesus coming back? Because that's where the tension comes from, right? The tension doesn't come, fact, come from the fact that Jesus is coming back. Uh, the tension comes from the fact that Jesus hadn't come back yet. The tension comes from the fact that I've begun this life and I'm having to fight and I'm having to fight and I'm having to fight and I don't know when he's coming back. And so that's where I think the struggle sometimes comes is the second part in verse 15 where it says that he will come at the proper time. You ever argue with God and kind of go, can we talk about the whole timing thing a little bit? Like, what is the proper time? And I think the follow-up question that is according to whom? Because for me, in my perspective, in the way I look at it, the proper time is like yesterday or at least maybe today or tomorrow, but it's gotta be here soon. But God has been slow in sending his son so that more might be saved. But it's our expectations that get us in trouble. And we live in an Amazon Prime world, don't we? Don't you want that little button that goes, next day delivery? God, can, can I just get next day delivery on your restoration of all things? Like, I don't want to wait anymore. I don't want to fight anymore. I don't want for this to be out of my control. I want it to be able to tell you when this ought to happen. And that's what gets us in trouble. Friends, why do we think the Christian life will be struggle-free? Like, where did we get the idea that, that the Christian life would just be easy and there would be no struggle? Because I don't think it came from this book. It sure didn't come from 1 Timothy. You don't see it as he calls us to fight the good fight. So let's think about this when we think about how long we need to keep up the good fight. If we put an X down here that was the marker of our, the beginning, right? Our salvation, God saved us. We baptized, we made a confession. That begins our spiritual journey. What if we come all the way down here and we had to put another marker? What marks the second marker of our lives? Jesus' return. If we put another X at Jesus' return, that marks the kind of the second place. It's the culmination. It's the end. It's the goal of all of our fight. It's what we're about in between. In between the day in which he saved us and the day in which he comes back to get us, that's the life we live. And what is up to us is how we live in between the two markers. What, what is up to us is how we use the time between the beginning and the final end in which he comes back to get us. What's up to us is how we invest our our person and our, our energy and our resources and everything we have for the good of God and for the glory of God and the good of our world in between those two times. But this is the only period of time we have to invest in the life in which we live. Eternity would be set and it would be good, but we have the space right now where we get to determine how we are going to live, if we are going to be as men of God who fight the good fight, or whether we will be more like the tame goose who simply consume and make their way through this world until they stumble into the end. So we need to set the marker of baptism in our mind. We need to set the, the, the marker of Jesus' return. And then we need to choose the path of how we're gonna live in between the two. And I think that's what, that, where this begins to push us and cause us to think. I also think that's why Paul uses the imagery of a fight. The fight he gives here, he talks about, it's a, the fight of, a, of an athlete competing in battle. Um, yesterday was Championship Saturday. Any of you watch some football? Do you see some people competing? See some people contending? See some people fighting for victory? That's the image that Paul's drawing from, from his culture, is saying you need to fight like that in the area of your spiritual life. It's interesting, in chapter one, he talks about fighting the good fight. He actually uses an image that's a little more from, from warfare. It's more battle. And so in that sense, it's kind of like you're fighting against something. You're contending against an enemy. The, but the, the fight of, a, of an athlete that he uses here is more you're contending against yourself. You're competing against yourself. You're fighting to make your life count for something. And so it's a little bit of a nuanced, kind of a different conversation that Paul uses in this place. And we understand how this works in other areas of life, right? And even seeing the AT&T commercials, it's like, it's, you know, just okay is not okay. Like in the, in the area of medicine, and the guy comes in and is like, you know, the guy's getting ready to go to surgery. He's like, how do you feel about this doctor? And uh, the, the, the nurse says, yeah, he's okay. And you see the patient's face like, like, no, like if you're cutting me open, I want you to sort of know, where you're, know your way around. I want you to sort of be good with a knife. I don't want to see you slipping a little bit, you know, when you're splicing and dicing on my body. I, I sort of want you to be a master at this. 
I want you to be, we understand how that works in, in areas of life. We understand how that works in uh, accounting. Like I, I don't want an accountant who, who's just okay at math, an accountant who's just okay at math. You know, like you get to the end, it's like, ah, it's probably in the ballpark. Like that's not okay, right? Like we understand how this works in all kinds of life, all, all kinds of areas of life, but, uh, and we're not okay with it there, but it's interesting. We sometimes take the spiritual life and treat it completely differently and think, ah, you know, it's okay to just be okay. And yet Paul, I think, saying, no, fight the good fight. Don't be okay with mediocrity. Fight for that which is truly worth fighting for. That's why Paul says you have to get rid of some things and take hold of other ones because there's action. We have to seek contentment for earthly things. We have to seek passion for, for spiritual things. We've got to foster and cultivate our lives in this kind of a, a, a way of living. And part of what it means is this, this line you connect from this marker to the marker at the end that you want that line to be continuous and straight, that you don't want to veer off course. Mediocrity just veers off course. And what we have to do, we know we all fall short, right? What you want to do over time is you just want the veering off course to come a little closer. And you want the time in which you begin to veer off course. You just want to stop and and repent and come back in line. That's what repentance means. This idea in scripture is that you begin to veer off course and you repent and you course correct and you get back in line and you say, no, I'm going to run after the end, like the end game of Jesus' return because my life is ultimately oriented by him more so than by self. The question I think for us is, is that, let's be honest, it'd be easy to guilt this up, right? Like it'd be easy to load this up. And I, you know, as I, as I think about this, I think it's helpful sometimes to just think about the difference between the, in the way in which you live. Let me ask you a couple questions. Is the aroma of your prayer and worship life as, as, as skilled as the aroma of your Christmas cookies? And can you, can you cut the word of God as well as you can cut your grass? Like there's all these things that we do in life that we work hard at, but do we work hard at the spiritual life in the same sort of way? Are you as invested in the Great Commission as you are in your sales commission? Uh, are you, you know, if, I think there's just a reality for us that they have to acknowledge that there's a fight to this. There's, there's a kind of a, a competing for the right things that comes with this. Like, I don't know anyone that shares their faith who's not afraid. But there's some that push through their fear. And there's some that allow that to keep them from, from testifying about Jesus' goodness. We're called to fight for that which is good. I think the question for us is, how are you doing in the journey? And are you, are you on the path? Are you on the path from where God began something in you and looking forward to Jesus' return? Are you longing for it? Are you living for that? Or have you veered off course? Some of you today, you, need to, you just need to repent. You need to confess and say, Lord, I've gone off course. And I need you to, I need you to realign me to your purposes and to your will and, and to your heart for this world. And it's important to remember that God saved you. God granted you faith. God called you to himself. God gave you a new heart. God gave you a new life. God gave you forgiveness of your sins. God put his spirit within you. God gave you his church to help guide you. He's given you everything he can give you and calls you to obey. So we need to be those who fight for the good good fight and don't just throw in the towel. Uh, C.S. Lewis said this, and I think this gives us hope. It says, you can't go back and change the beginning but you can start where you are and change the ending. That's good news for us. I don't know where you are. I don't know where, where your course has taken you from the beginning, but from wherever you are now, I'm 100% convinced that you can change the ending, but you've got to repent and you've got to continue, continue to grow in learning how to walk and fight the good fight. So just in case you needed some encouragement, uh, Paul reminds us that our fight is connected with Jesus' fight. Notice what he talks about in verse 13. He mentions Jesus Christ who gave his testimony or good confession before Pontius Pilate. What's he talking about there? Jesus, before he died, uh, whenever he had been handed over to the Romans and they were uh, kind of having this, uh, this mock trial and they were trying to get Jesus crucified and they were working for that. At one point, Jesus had to stand before a, a ruler named Pontius Pilate. And as he did, Pontius, began to, uh, Pontius Pilate began to, to question Jesus. And, and he asked Jesus, he says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus fulfilling prophecy said, well, you have said so. And that was in Mark and John, he records it this way. Pilate said to Jesus, so are you a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. 
For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And so that's Jesus' good confession. If we give good confession at baptism, Jesus says gave good confession. You notice it uses a repetition of the exact same phrase. We gave good confession in baptism. Jesus gave good confession before Pontius Pilate. Why is he making a connection there? He wants Timothy to understand somehow your good confession is connected with Jesus' good confession. What was Jesus' confession? I, he confessed about himself, right? That yes, I am a king. Yes, I am the one. Yes, I come to testify to the truth. So Jesus was strong enough to testify to himself. When you make a confession of baptism, who is your confession of? Is it about yourself? No, your confession in your baptism is, I can't save myself, but Jesus can. Your confession is also about Jesus. And so if your confession is connected to Jesus' confession, what Paul wants you to understand is Jesus' end is gonna be connected, or your end is gonna be connected to Jesus' end. But just as he confessed, you confessed not in your own strength, but him. What happened to Jesus after his confession with Pontius Pilate? He endured, he suffered, he struggled. He, he, he endured great pain and suffering, but that didn't define the end, did it? In the end was his resurrection. In the end, he was victorious. In the end, he's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. At the end, he's King of kings and Lord of lords. At the end, every knee will bow and confess him as Lord. At the end, he's gonna come back and he's gonna rule and he's gonna reign over all. That's Jesus' end. And what we need to understand is that just like Jesus made a good confession before he went into something that he was going to suffer and struggle and fight and endure, we also make a good confession. We're also going to suffer and struggle and fight and have to endure. But just like Jesus, one day we too will be victorious. We too will come out on the other side. And so our, our, our life is wrapped up in his, which is why Paul it's interesting, Paul just stops and he does this sometimes in his writing. He just kind of stops and is like, hey, let me just give you a little worship song here for just a minute. And he, verse 15, he says that Jesus will return, which he will display at the proper time. And in your Bible, there may just be like a colon or a dash. It's because they don't really know what to do with that grammatically. Paul just like, it's like Paul just is talking in mid-sentence. He just starts like, let me just start praising God real quick. And that's kind of what he does. And he says, he who is blessed and sovereign, the only sovereign King of Kings, Lord of Lords, who alone is immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. And that means he's otherworldly. To dwell in unapproachable light means he's, he's out of this world. He lives somewhere that we can't even fathom, whom no one has ever seen and can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Paul wants us to understand that the time between Christ's appearing to make or Christ, Christ's uh, salvation of us and Christ's return is the life we have. And ultimately it's all oriented around him. It all results in praise and it's all to be for his glory. And Paul, when he stops and he thinks about all that Jesus did for us, he just kind of explodes in worship. And I love that image. It's interesting <clears throat> when you think about what he's doing is Jesus set an example for us. He says, when you make the good confession, you enter into the fight. And so you've committed to, when you make a confession at baptism, you're committing to a king in his kingdom. You're committing to fight for him. You're committing to run after him. And you're also committing to enjoy the, the blessing that he brings in the end. Friends, the, the entire, entire book of 1 Timothy it's interesting when you think about kind of this coming to the end of this book, this letter that Timothy is, or that Paul has written to Timothy. As he gets to the end, this is how he's summarizing it and kind of bringing it to an end. And the whole thing is focused on what? The church. He, this, this book is about how the church is supposed to function, how the church is supposed to be led, how we're to operate within the life of the church, that we're, we're, we come into the church by grace and the church is there to testify to the grace, to the world. We, we're to live godly lives, quiet and dignified in front of the world and pray for them that they too might be saved and experience all that we are. He talks about the leadership of the church and what it is to be. And he comes to the end and he gives this charge of fight the good fight. Why? Because... The church is God's plan A and there isn't a plan B for the world. When Jesus left, he said, you're to stay together until the spirit comes and then you are to set up these pockets of people called churches all around the globe that testify to my goodness and you invite the whole world in 
to understand the grace of God and to be nurtured in the grace of God and to be, to be taught what it looks like to fight the good fight until, and to long for Jesus' return and to long for the things that he will one day bring to be true. This is what Paul's, called to, Paul's calling Timothy to. It's also what he's calling us to. Friends, I think Paul's giving a battle cry because he wants us to fight for the stuff that really matters. Let me ask you this. Who's going to take responsibility for the spiritual well-being of Edmond, Oklahoma? Like who, who feels the responsibility for the spiritual landscape of our city? You know, it's interesting when you see kind of our government and everything that we're about, and you see these, the, these master plans that are out there for street development and for economic development and for educational development and new schools that are going to be bought, built and uh, new roads that are going to be built and new highways that are going to expedite traffic via east-west. God, send that please quickly. Uh, we need that in our city. Uh, we need roads to get us to places. We need potholes to be filled. We need plans for all those things. But let me ask you this, who feels the responsibility for the spiritual landscape of our city, if not us. God has left us as his church here. God has called us here to be here in this time and in this place for the good of this city and for his glory in, in, in our city. And so he's called us into that. And I think he gives us the same charge that he gives to Timothy, which is, friends, fight the good fight because it's worth it. And if you've been called up, if you made a good confession at your baptism, what, what he's calling us to acknowledge is, I'm in the fight. Like if you've been baptized into Christ Jesus, you're in the fight. You're one of his. You're part of the church. You're the people that he has drafted into service for his own possession. You're the ones that he has gifted for ministry. You're the ones that, he has, that he's put his spirit into so that you can walk out this life and, and continue to fight for the things that really matter. You're in the fight if you're one of his. The question is, are you, are you on the course? Is your, is, is your mind fixated on his return and on how you wanna live between now or between the beginning and between the end that's yours? He's gonna come back and get you. He's promised he will. What's up for grabs is what you do with the time you have from this spot till that one. And that's, I think, the call of 1 Timothy. And that's why it's interesting. Paul seems to make a really odd shift in the next verse. And why is it Paul goes where he does in this next verse? Because it feels like this really abrupt change. I think in all this, what he's saying is, and if, if all of what he said is true, if Christ really is overall, if Christ really has saved you, if Christ really is enough, if you've been baptized into him, if you're living for him, if you're longing for his return, as he talked about, then, um, then you're free to give your life to him. There's nothing in your life which you'd hold back if all of that is true. And so that's the fourth thing I think we're called to. We're called to flee, follow, fight, and we're called to freely give. Freely give our lives away for God and for good. Verse 17, he says this, this feels like a weird place to go at the end of a book, right? Like he's just finished this culmination of six chapters. He finishes this big kind of anthem of praise and worship. And then all of a sudden in verse 17, what's he say? As for those who are rich in the present age. It's like, whoa, I thought we were landing the plane and Paul was ending this book. Where is he gonna go with this? As for those who are rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So why is it Paul's going, um, going here? One, I think if we understand everything that we've been given, then we freely give our lives away for the glory of God and for the good of others. But I think it's also true that this is a place where the church sometimes has gotten off. But I think Paul knows that, that, that somehow money always moves the mission forward. I think that was true 2,000 years ago. I think that's true today. And so Paul, at the end of this book, talking about the, the mission of the church and all that we're called to, it's interesting that he goes back to this area of finances right at the very end. You know, I think this is one of the things that has gotten the church in trouble, non-compassionate use of material gain, for the power of the church and the building of, of our kingdoms rather than serving of the poor and building of his kingdom. 
And we've seen that throughout church history. We've seen how that's led people off course. And so I think that's why Paul addresses it here. And there's kind of this balanced approach he takes where he says, look, let's not get off course. But let's also acknowledge the importance or the, the benefit that this could be to the mission of God and to what it is we're, uh, we're called to do. Um, it's interesting, Paul calls us not just to be generous financially, but he calls us to be generous with our lives, to be generous with our time and energy, and also to be generous with our treasure. So it's kind of time, talent, treasure, everything we're to be generous with. Interesting, when you think about this, does he make any judgment about the rich, either good or bad? He really doesn't, does he? He just says, to those who happen to be rich in this present age, and then he gives some instructions. So he's not making a judgment as to whether they're good or bad, but it, and so he doesn't necessarily condemn it. He just, nat- he just acknowledges the fact that, man, there are some in this, in this world that have more than others. And so he's gonna give some instruction. He gives two warnings to them. What are the two warnings he gives? Don't be arrogant. Don't be haughty. You know, the, there's, it's one thing not to have as much as someone else. It's another one when they act like it, Right? Like that's what really grates sometimes is when someone acts as though they're better than you because they happen to be given, be given more than you. And so he says, don't be haughty, be humble, even in the midst of the fact that you may have much. And then verse two, or the second thing he says is, don't set your hopes. To set your hope on something is to fix your future on something. To, he says, do not set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Why? He says, because riches are not really trustworthy. You can't really trust what they're going to provide. James says, says, look, idiot, you don't even know what tomorrow's going to hold. So don't say, well, tomorrow I'm going to go and I'm going to craft this business and do this thing and do whatever else there. Like, you don't know what tomorrow holds. You can't possibly justify what it is that the future or put all your hopes and riches because they're not really trustworthy. But it's easy for, I think, those who have a lot to assume that money will always be there for them, to assume that they will always be able to generate more, to invest more, to make more. Uh, you ever have any friends that are serial entrepreneurs? Like they have some that do really well and they have three that do really poorly and they squander really all the money they made in the first one because they kept thinking, well, if I just put more in, I'm just gonna keep making more. But it's unpredictable what happens in life. And so he says, it's not very trustworthy. He says, so don't fix your hope on, on, on riches, but instead fix your hope on what? Fix your hope on God, who richly provides us everything to enjoy. You know, it's interesting, it, um, I think Paul gives some balance here because he's gonna, in just a minute, call uh, the rich to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to always be ready to share financially with those who have needs. But here he also says that, that, they, that, that God's given us whatever we have in order to enjoy. I think, you know, if you ask anyone later in life, what is it the people later in life will always say? I wish I'd have made more. No, they said, I wish I'd have risked more. I wish I'd have laughed more. I wish I would have enjoyed my life more. And rarely do they say, I wish I'd earned more. I wish I'd have worked more. I wish I'd have tried harder to accumulate more stuff. See, money has the the potential to entice us to fix our hope on something that's not really satisfying, but also not really trustworthy. So friends, don't, don't grow up and grump up. Like it's pretty easy as you grow up just to get grumpy. But I think part of what we have to do is in order not to go crazy in life, you need to enjoy life some. And he says that you're called to enjoy that which, or that God richly provides us everything so that we might enjoy it because he wants our good. He, he wants that which is good for us. Ecclesiastes seven times says that, we are, that we're told to enjoy life. You're told to enjoy your wife, to enjoy your work, to fear God and enjoy the things that you've been given. It, it talks about the problem of the ability to earn money, but never to enjoy the life that God, that it enables for you. And so I think there's some balance here. And some of us, to be honest, we need to go have some fun. Like some of us need to go get around a, a bowl of queso and enjoy our friends. Uh, some of us need to just go on vacation. Uh, some of us need to go skiing to watch some football, to binge watch a show on a long weekend. Uh, there, there's a lot of hard times in this world. And there's things that we need to sometimes remember, man, the whole weight of the world's not on my shoulders. I'm not big enough to carry it. There's a God who carries the weight of the world. And my job is to participate with him in the good of this world. But I don't carry the whole weight. And so I think there's some balance here. But then he also says that we're, as we fix our hope on, on the Lord, that that's gonna have some ramifications for us. So he gives us three things we're supposed to do, right? I love how simple this is. This is stuff that a little kid could understand, right? What's he say? 
you're, I charge you to what? Do good. Like, that's not hard, right? I mean, you know what that means, basically. Just go do good. And then he says to be rich, not just financially, be, be rich in what? Good works, meaning be, be engaged in ministry. Be abundantly engaged in serving the Lord and doing good and the work of the church and all the things that you do. He says, you, you of all people, as, as those who are wealthy, tend to have more time. They tend to have more resources. They tend to have more ability to engage these things. Not ability in terms of their skill, but they just have more space because they've been afforded with more, with more uh, kind of a cushion in life. So he says, be rich in the amount of ministry that you do. And then he says, always be ready to share and be generous with those around you. So what's the, the heart of that? Is that we don't live for ourselves, but ultimately we live for, for the glory of God and for the good of others. That that ultimately is what ought to drive us. Friends, there are a lot of things you can invest your life in. I was reading this week about uh, this art exhibit that uh, has just been on display at one of the major um, kind of arts festivals, and, or not festivals, but it was an art event of some, si- some type. And this famous artist is releasing this new work and he hadn't put out any new art in 15 years. And so he rolled out this new art and it sold for $120,000 and they're gonna do another one that's 120. And then they sold a third one of these installations they're gonna do that was worth $150,000. Can I show you what the piece of art is? Uh, friends, there are a lot of things you can invest your life in. 120 grand right there. Um, how many of you are gonna go be an artist soon? Like, I don't know how you get that gig, but literally <clears throat> he went to a market, picked up a banana and duct taped it to a wall. And that's the art. Now, here's the thing, that investment, whatever you get for that installment and whatever wall you wanna put it on, I mean, in a matter of days, that's gonna be a moldy mess dripping down your wall with nothing but stink on it. The investment we have in God's kingdom, I promise you it's gonna last a lot longer. I promise you it's gonna smell a lot better. I promise you it's gonna be a lot more satisfying. And I promise you it's worth a whole lot more than 120,000. Whatever we could give, whatever we could invest, we can't outgive God, we can't outserve God, we can't out generous, uh, generous God. God's generosity to us, he's given us everything to enjoy. He's given us his only son in order that we might enjoy life with him forever. And so, man, we turn and we invest in all of that. What's the motivation that's given? Verse 19, thus storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future so that you might take hold of that which is truly life. Friends, there is, in this world, there's life and there's that which is truly life. He says, when we invest in God's stuff, we're taking hold of that which is truly life, that which is truly rewarding. You move beyond a banana on a wall. You move beyond a tame goose pecking in, the deal that's headed for a Christmas table, but you actually do that for which you were created. You're created to live for the glory of God and for the good of others. And so invest your life in it because in you do, you will store up yourself treasure in heaven that's certain and that is not up for grabs. Let me give you a couple more verses. I think it's important for us to think about this. Bible continually gives us these uh, reminders that we have an opportunity in life to, to make a difference. And that somehow our, our lives are, are not just a pregame, a pregame deal, but this is actually the game of life that we're engaged in. And it actually will play itself out in all eternity. And so the Bible tells us that we'll, we'll all stand before God and we'll give an account of our lives. As second Timothy is interesting. Paul, the same writer of this book to Timothy, writes a second letter to Timothy a little bit later in his life. Listen to what he says. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Do you catch what he's saying? Paul's saying, I did it. I'm coming to the end. I've laid it all out. I've given everything I can give. I fought the good fight. I ran the race. He takes all this imagery of what he says. He says, he remembers that one day he was an enemy of God and God struck him blind and gave him faith. And this, this enemy of God who was a murderer and a persecutor of the church, his life was completely changed. And he became the greatest missionary of the church who wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else. And Paul says, that was the marker of my conversion that God saved me and he snatched me up and called me to himself. And he set me on a new course for my life. 
and I'm longing for Jesus appearing. And whenever he turned me and, and sent me on a new path, friends, you experience the same thing. God has called you, he saved you, he set you on a new path. And he says, to all who long for Jesus appearing, there's a crown of righteousness awaiting that the Lord will, will grant to us. There's a reward that's come for us. And so he says, uh, Jesus told us, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. When's the last time you left for joy? Have you forgotten who you are? Friends, you are a man of God or a woman of God who should be leaping for joy because one day you'll be with him and it's gonna be worth it. Jesus said that someday um, that the master will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Friends, it's a life well lived. It's a life well spent. It's a life well invested. Let's live that kind of life. Let's fight the good fight. Let's be those who long for Jesus appearing, who recognize, who wake up and just recognize that there's a beginning point of our lives where God saved us and there's another end marker of our lives where he's gonna come back and get us. And let's invest the time in between those two with everything we've got for the glory of God and for the good of our world. And it's interesting, the last line in the book, the last line in the book, he says, grace be with you. Uh, that's good timing right there. Um, friends, in this fight, we're all gonna need a lot of grace. We're all gonna veer off course. We're all gonna fall down and stumble. We're all gonna need someone's hand to lift them up and encourage them. That's why he's put us together in this thing called the church. Friends, grace be with you as you fight the good fight. Let me pray for us. Father, we do pray. We ask for your grace. We ask for your strength. Father, give us a vision to fight the fight. Give us a vision of that which is truly life. Give us a hunger and a heart for Jesus' return and to make our lives count until that day. Father, give us great confidence that Christ has called, Christ has redeemed, Christ has forgiven, Christ has sent his spirit, Christ has shown us the way, Christ will return and take us home, Christ will rule and invite us to rule alongside him one day. Father, may it be so. Amen.